So I'm going to read our scripture for us, or a portion of it. We're in Genesis chapter 11, and I'm going to read from verse 27 all the way down into chapter 12 at verse 3. It says, now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred and Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran and the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no children. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Sarai. Well, good morning. Uh, my name is James, if we haven't met, one of the elders here, and I'm very excited for us to dive this morning into our new series on the patriarchs, and as well as the matriarchs, into the lives of uh, Abram and Sarai and Isaac and Rebecca and Jacob and Leah and Rachel. And I think what we'll see is we see their journey of faith, and that's really what it is. It is an account of their faith. We will see ourselves. We will see our own faith journey. We will see, on the one hand, a boldness of faith that is breathtaking. We'll see that this morning. But we'll also see a faltering of faith that is shocking to us. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? But I hope as we see this boldness of faith... uh, which is extraordinary. If you are a Christian, if you have heard the call of the gospel and obeyed, you have exercised what Paul the Apostle calls the obedience of faith. That's a remarkable thing that Jesus says, hey you, I want you to abandon all that gives you identity, all your fundamental loyalties, your ethnic identity, your political affiliations, your familial identities. I want you to all put those behind you and then take up the instrument of my execution and follow me to the grave. And we're like, yeah, I'm in. (laughs) That's crazy, right? That takes a divine power and promise to engender such an extraordinary move of faith. And yet at the same time, like the fathers and mothers of our faith, we find our faith so often fickle and frail, weak, feeble. This last year, 2020 through 2021, has tested my faith. I don't know about you. And I have seen its weakness, its frailty. And it's been a little shocking to me. 
I've seen others' faith falter as well. And maybe that's shaken you up. And there's a dual aspect of faith that we see in our narratives and in our own lives and 2,000 years of church history and, and many more thousands of years of Israel's history. And that dual nature is both on the one hand the divine power of faith, the gift of faith engendered by such infinite power and promise. On the other hand, it's all too human vessel. This, this membrane in which faith resides in its frailty and weakness. But the same power that engenders such extraordinary faith among us also sustains us. And my hope as we look at these narratives over the next couple of months, we will see not just ourselves, but more importantly, we will see Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Would you pray with me to that end? Lord Jesus, thank you that you reveal yourself and reveal your Father to us, that we might know the one true God, that faith might be generated in us, gifted to us, and sustained by divine power, though we often cry out, I believe, help my unbelief. Lord, I pray you would sustain us now through the great name of Jesus, your Savior. Amen. Well, in chapter 12, we have the beginning of what marks a new section of the book of Genesis, the so-called patriarchal narratives. And it's a blessing, a promise of blessing that comes to this figure that we just got introduced to here earlier in chapter 11 that Stacy read from, named Abram. We don't know who he is. We haven't heard anything about him until now. And all of a sudden, this superlative blessing seemingly out of nowhere, is dropped in his lap. Look again at verses 2 and 3. I will make you a great nation, and I will uh, bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. He who dishonors you, I will curse in you. All the families of the earth shall be blessed. The root word for bless is used five times. Clearly, this is an emphasis. What's striking is, if you count all the times it's reverses used, it's opposite, curse, since the beginning of Genesis, curses appeared five times. It's as though God is answering the curse that has entered into the world and the original sin of Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. But prior to the original sin that brought curse into our lives, there stood an even more ancient and supreme original blessing. In Genesis, God creates the whole universe, and it is good. And when he creates humanities, he, he puts a blessing on humanity. He blesses them and says, Be fruitful, multiply, have dominion over the land of the earth and the vegetables of the earth. Have dominion over land and multiply and fill the earth with my image. Reign on earth as I reign in heaven. But very quickly, things get complicated. And so in Genesis 3, original sin enters into the picture and complicates this blessing. And what comes along now is curse. And what gets cursed? The very things we were blessed with. 
Be fruitful, multiply. The, the, the wife, Eve, is told, you will bear children now through much pain and toil. It will come with great hardship. And the man who's given uh, the work of the land, and both Adam and Eve are given dominion over the land, are told, now the ground is cursed because of you. And, and, and it will still produce. But with great effort and pain, thorns and thistles will complicate blessing. But the promise subsists. It's given to Adam and Eve that the offspring of the woman will be at enmity with the offspring of the serpent but that the offspring of the woman would crush the serpent's head. And so the first offspring the woman has is Cain, and she praises God. Then she has another boy named Abel, and Cain kills him. The curse seems to prevail. The threat of the promise is palpable. And then she has another boy named Seth. And Genesis tells us God blesses him as the image bearer of Adam, the image bearer of God. And the blessing continues despite the curse. Seth has children, a godly line, leading to Lamech, who has a boy named Noah, which sounds like rest. And he says, this boy will give us rest from the ground that the Lord God cursed. And Noah saves, saves the human race from the curse of the ground. Noah has boys, and he, he blesses Shem and Japheth. Ham is cursed. Shem has a, has a series of sons leading us to Terah. So the blessing here doesn't come out of nowhere. It's the original intention of God to bless his universe, to bless his world, to bless humanity. But he selects one. He elects one man on all the face of the earth, and says, to you I will bless. I will make your name great. I will make you a great nation. And what does a nation require? Land and offspring. And there's a problem here. One, Abram is not in the promised land. He's far, far away. And two, did you notice chapter 11, verse 30? His wife Sarai was infertile. She had no children. The curse threatens the promise. But God presses the promise nevertheless in his tenacity to bring blessing to his world. He will make Abram's name great. It's the same promise that's given to Abram's descendant, King David. I will make your name great. The same promise that David's greater son realizes, Jesus of Nazareth. The Father has given him the name above all names. That is his name... Uh, all the nations, everything in heaven, on the earth, and under the earth will bow their knee and honor the greatest of the sons of Abraham. This is contrasted with what the nations were trying to do in chapter 11. The nations were trying to, we read in chapter 11, verse 4, make a name for ourselves. We want to have some permanency here in this world of curse and death. We want, to, we want to build a tower, a monument that will give us permanent identity, a home. So we're not lost in this world. But God scatters it because it's based on human rebellion, not to image God, but to make our own images. And they could only bring curse. 
So God scatters them. And what does he do? He picks one, one descendant of Shem, and says, through you, Abram, I will fulfill my intention to bless not just you, but did you notice verse 3? All the families of the earth. God's original intention to bless humanity will be fulfilled. So he picks Abram. Well, Abram must have been like Noah, a righteous dude, right? Nope. In fact, Joshua tells the Israelites as they're entering into the promised land, remember your forefathers, Abram, Terah, his father? They were, they were beyond the river Euphrates when God called them, and they worshipped other gods. Literally, they served other gods. We know from archaeology at the land of Ur, the city of Ur was a significant city. It was like, kind of like a London or a New York today. And it was a center for the worship of a predominant deity in Mesopotamia named, ironically enough, Sin. He was the god of the moon, very powerful. And their family must have been pretty involved in this worship because Sarai's name probably is derived from the name of Sin's female consort, this female goddess. And Milcah, who's Nahor's daughter or wife, is named also... Uh, probably after the title of the moon god's daughter, which means queen. Whatever the case, they went from Ur to another moon god center, Haran. And instead of moving on to the land of Canaan, they stayed there. This was their identity. This was their family religion. This was, this was who they were. It's part of their ethnic identity, their religious identity, their familial identity. And yet look what God says in verse 1. Go from your country, from what you know, from your kindred, your security. In those days, you didn't have a police force. You had family. And the bigger your family, the better. He says, I want you to leave behind security. Leave behind what you know, your identity. I want you to leave that. And I want you to go to a place you do not know. And the, here's the crazy thing. Abram goes. <laughs> and so he's the father of us all. Look what Paul writes to the Galatians. A, a bunch of Gentiles who had heard the gospel and responded in faith and were being told, but you're not really the true sons of Abraham. You have to take on the law of Moses to do that. Look what Paul says. Does God who supplies the Spirit to you and work miracles among you do so because of the works of the law? Or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, know then that those, it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham, not those who do the law. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And what Paul's saying is, you Gentiles in Galatia, you're heirs of this. You're the recipients of this blessing. Don't let these men rob you of it. So then, those who are of faith are blessed Along with Abraham, I love this, the man of faith. Abram is the paradigm of our faith, the fountainhead of our faith in Scripture. And it wasn't just a radical conversion at the beginning of his life that marked his faith. His whole life was a life of faith. He walked by faith, and he stumbled, but he walked by faith. 
Look at what the author of Hebrews says about Abraham. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. <laughs> Some of you are like, that sounds like me. I don't know where I'm going. But if you're following God, it's okay. We walk by faith. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land. Even though it was his inheritance, he was a stranger in a strange place. Living in tents, he had no permanent home. He had no permanent residency. So, we read on after Abram's obedience, verse 4. Look at verses 4 and following in your Bibles with me in chapter 12. So Abram went, he obeyed in faith. Just as the Lord told him, right? This is the obedience of faith. And he takes Sarai, his wife. He takes Lot. And look at verse 6 and following. They come to the land of Canaan. So if you see on the map there, uh, we'll throw the map up real quick. You see that Abram went from Ur with his father's household 550-some miles to Haran, the other center for the worship of the moon god. And then they kind of stuck around there. Well, when his father dies, Abram continues the journey. And he moves on from Haran all the way down, nearly another 500-some miles, all the way down to Shechem, which is in the middle of the land of Canaan. And he comes, well, let's read about it. Let's read. Um, verse 6, Abram passes through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Marah, literally the, the, the oak of instruction, probably a pace, place of pagan divination. And at that time, the Canaanites were in the land. So again, he's a stranger in a strange land. This is a, it's kind of dark territory he's in. And the Lord appeared to Abram and said, not only did the Lord show Abram the land, the Lord showed Abram himself. And how appropriate that God would manifest his presence in the promised land. The promised land will become a picture of the Garden of Eden where God is. And there he makes himself seen to Abram. And he shows him, this is the land. This is it. This is what I was talking about. The Lord appeared to him and said, to your offspring. And here this, it's explicit. Abram, you will have children. I will give this land. So what does Abram do? He builds an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. Then he moves on. From there, he goes to the hill country east of Bethel, pitches his tents and that, with Bethel on the west, Nai on the east. And there he built another altar. And there he called upon the name of the Lord, him and his whole kind of village. This is hundreds of people that, was, that were with him, as we'll see next week. And so they're, they're, they're worshiping in this dark territory. I love this. And then he makes his way south to the Negev. He's kind of walking the length and breadth of the whole inheritance. It's a symbolic occupation of what's not yet his. And he's building altars to God, little shrines to Yahweh. This is God's territory. And by faith he built that. And by faith he waited. Look what the author of Hebrews says. You have this on the screen. By faith he went out to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, though it was his, was, wasn't his, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. He wasn't trying to build his own city. He was waiting for God to build it. 
Verse 13, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised. Sarah died, Abraham died. Their bodies were buried in the promised land, but they never saw it for themselves. But having seen the promises and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth, people who speak that way, who say, I'm a stranger and an exile here, they, they make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. They're looking for a place to finally call home. But if they were thinking about their own homeland, Ur, they could have always gone back there. That's not what they were talking about. They're talking about a homeland they've never been to yet. The home of righteousness. The new heavens, the new earth. And they wait for it patiently, and so do we. And here's what we do in the meantime. You know, when Jesus rose from the dead, he gave a very similar command that Yahweh gives to Abram. Go. He says, all authority in heaven and earth is mine. All this territory belongs to Jesus. The the neighborhood of Eau Claire, that's Jesus's. The city of Columbia, in its entirety, belongs to Jesus. The city of Manchester, it's Jesus's. Western China, North Africa, Southeast Asia, wherever you go, Jesus says, mine. And then he says, go there. Make disciples. Build shrines in my name. Plant churches. Occupy enemy territory. And wait for me. So that's what we do. Whether you stay here at Riverside, we still go. We go and make disciples in our city. Some of you need to go to Eau Claire and build a shrine for Christ. In Eau Claire, some of you may go to Manchester or Thailand or Panama. But we in faith build shrines waiting for the city of God. And we build emblems of that city even here and now. But very quickly, very quickly, the promise seems threatened again. And Father Abraham stumbles. Look at verse 10 and following. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman, beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they'll let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. I don't understand the order of that sentence. But there it is. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this that you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here, your wife, take, go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. What's happening here? 
Well, the famine would seem to threaten the promise. You just now got into the promised land, and now God strangles it with a famine. And so this happens multiple times in Genesis. It happens to Isaac. A famine hits, and he has to, he has to get, get out. It happens to Jacob and his family. Famine hits, and they have to get out. Some think going to Egypt itself was the sin. I don't know that that's true. Isaac was specifically told not to go to Egypt, but to go to Philistia and be blessed by God. And he does. And then he does the same thing Abram does here to Sarai, to Rebekah. But then Jacob, when the famine hits the land of promise for Jacob, God says, go down to Egypt. I go with you and I will bless you. At any rate, Abram doesn't seem to consult anybody. He just says, look, it's this common sense. We're going to go to where the Nile rises and there's always food. That's where we're going to go, right? The hill country of, 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 of the land of Canaan was often pretty, the weather could be kind of sketchy, and so you would often have these kinds of agricultural issues. But Egypt was always um, a very lush place. But I think what's the big irony is here is he sees the land threatened, the promise of the land being threatened by famine, and in his solution, he ends up putting the promise of the offspring under great threat, right? What does he do? He has a scheme to try to save his own neck, but in that scheme threatens the ancestress to the offspring that's promised. He threatens the promised seed. So Abraham here, his faith falters critically. And what we're seeing here is not a response of his faith, but probably just his pattern as an ancient Bedouin, as a desert nomad. We find out later this is just what he did. This was his pattern of life as a wanderer. We see this in, in Abimelech when he, when he does the same thing to a king in Philistia named Abimelech. Let's look on the screen. Abimelech finds out that Sarah is actually his wife. Same response. He gets interrogated by the king. What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you brought this on me and my kingdom? Such a great sin. You, you have done things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abram, what did you see that you did this thing? He's clearly not happy. Abraham said, I did it because I thought there's no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she's my half-sister. <laughs> kind of a half-truth presented as a whole lie. Or as a whole truth is a whole lie. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I wonder if he's blaming God there. I said to her, look, this is the kindness you must do to me. At every place where we come, say of me, he is my brother. See, without that huge entourage of kindred, he was a little bit more vulnerable, so he felt like he needed to protect himself, and he did. But his, his strategy here was, I think, to buy himself some time. If someone approached him and said, she's a beautiful woman, I would like to take her as a wife, he would have some negotiating room to get out. This happens later with Rebecca and her brothers. So maybe I think he was just buying him. I don't think he was trying to sell Sarai to a harem. I don't think that was his intent. I think he was just trying to play it safe. But that's what happened. The little strategy he had backfired because what he didn't expect is the Pharaoh himself wanted her. And Pharaoh didn't ask. He just came and took her. And he did give a bride price, a quite handsome one, made Abram a very rich man. But Abram had no negotiating power. But I think Abram here is clearly rebuked in our text itself. 
In fact, Pharaoh does the same thing Abimelech does, a threefold interrogation. What is this you have done to me? Why? Why? It reminds us of the threefold interrogation of Genesis 3, where God says to Adam and Eve, where are you? Who told you? What is this that you have done? And notice, (laughs) Abram doesn't say a word. He's quiet, ain't he? He didn't have anything to say. He has no excuse. Ironically, and this happens in Scripture, the pagan proves more righteous than the patriarch. Moreover, the sin of of deception is precisely the same sin that Adam and Eve brought into our world. I mean, it it was the hiding of themselves from God for fear of the consequences of death. And what does Abram do? He hides his identity as husband for fear of the consequences of death. Moreover, his deception causes Pharaoh to sin, much like the serpent's deception. Did God really say, surely you will not die? Caused Eve to see the fruit, see that it is good or beautiful for food to take and eat. And what does Pharaoh do? Well, Pharaoh's men sees that she is beautiful and takes. Now, that sin has no gender. I mean, Eve commits the first one. But when that sin gets played out in Scripture and history, it's typically men against women. In Genesis 6, the sons of God, whoever they are, see that the daughters of men are beautiful and they take them as their wives. This pattern gets repeated. King David, the great heir of all the promises of Abraham, sees beautiful Bathsheba bathing. He sees her, then notes her beauty, then sends for her and takes her. In fact, three times the word see is used here. Twice Sarai's beauty is noted. Three times the verb take is used. Abram may not have trafficked Sarai, but he did put her in a very vulnerable position to be trafficked. And here Abram repeats Adam's sin of throwing his wife under the proverbial bus to save his own neck. Remember what Adam said when he was interrogated? It's this woman that you gave to be with me. He like throws her out, right, to save himself rather than throwing himself out to save her. In fact, look at verse 13. This is so his conniving, right? His scheming. Say you are my sister that it may go well with me because of you. (laughs) Well, Abram fails here as a good husband. And he'll do it again with Abimelech. And then like father, like son, Isaac will do it again. Three times the promised line is threatened by the patriarchs themselves. And what's Sarah's response? Notice that just like when Abram before Pharaoh is completely silent, he doesn't say a word because he's got nothing to say. And also, there's quite a bit of a power differential. When Abram sort of uh, is plotting his scheme with Sarai, you'll notice it's another monologue. She doesn't say a word, does she? Did you notice that? Verses 11 through 13, there's a lot of ink spilled on just 
reporting what Abram has said to her. She has no voice. And I wonder if this likewise illustrates her lack of power, her vulnerability, which Abram's actions only accentuate. This too goes back to the curse. When the woman is told, your desire will be for, or it could be against your husband, it's the debate on how that gets interpreted, and he will rule over you. And that rule is not a good rule. This kind of patriarchy, literally, patriarchy means rule of the father, is bad for women. It's very bad. It doesn't protect them. It doesn't put their needs or desires above men's. Rather, it puts the advancement of men, especially powerful men, above women. But God does not rule the world that way. Though as father, we could describe his reign as a patriarchy. If you like, the heavenly patriarchy is ruled by kindness, tenderness, and is good for women because the Father loves them. He created them, and then he crowned them as his image bearers. And notice his response. Abram fails to protect Sarai. God does not. Look at verse 17. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh in his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. Now, why does he say that? We already know Sarai's Abram's wife. Why does he keep repeating that? He's like saying, shame on Abram, right? He's like, God stepped in because you failed to step in, Abram. And God great, brought great plagues because of her. Because the, she was threatened, the promised line was threatened. And God is too tenacious in his determination to bless, let anything stand in its way. So he brings great plagues against Pharaoh's house. I have to assume that they're venereal in nature because he knows immediately where they came from. And he goes, what did you do to me? <laughs> right? Brings in, brings in Abram. What is this you have done? You know, Jesus shows us the heavenly patriarchy when... Unlike Abram and unlike Adam, he doesn't throw his wife in front of the train. He throws himself for his wife. That's how you know what God's reign is like. So God throws the train at Pharaoh. Pharaoh's very upset. And God curses Pharaoh, just like he said, those who dishonor you, I will curse and strangely enough, Abram is blessed despite his scoundrel ways. Remember, he says, just do this for me so that it might go well with me in verse 13. Well, verse 16 says, Pharaoh did well to Abram and gave him all that stuff. God blesses Abram despite his sin. And this isn't condoning. God doesn't condone. The text here clearly condemns Abram's decisions. But this is God's determination to bless. He blesses the undeserving. When Abram was worshiping the moon, nothing about that attracted God's attention. But he blessed Abram. And now that he threw his wife under the bus, nothing about that attracts God's blessing. But he is determined to bring blessing to the world through Abram. 
By the way, does this sound familiar? The family of Abraham go down into Egypt. They are enslaved, Sarai in a harem. God brings great plagues against the house of Pharaoh, and they leave with the riches of Egypt. Sound familiar? Would it sound really familiar to the readers of this? Oh, that's us. This is God's pattern of redemption, and it gets played out again and again. In fact, it culminates in the seed of Abraham. Look on the screen from Matthew's Gospel. They also went down to Egypt to avoid a crisis. Now when they, the family of Jesus, had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Once again, the promised seed is threatened. Right? And he rose and he obeys. He takes the child and his mother by night and they departed to Egypt and they remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord spoke by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Out of Egypt I always call my son. I called Abraham. I called Moses. I called the people of Israel under Moses. And then I called my great son, my one and only, Jesus. Now, when Jesus descended, he didn't just go down into Egypt to avoid the crisis that complicated the blessing coming to us. The severe threat that stood in the way of God's tenacious blessing landing on us. He went down literally into the grave. And when he rose again, he came bearing gifts. Paul says this. He says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. If he said he ascended, it also meant he descended to the lowest regions and he ascended to the highest of highs. But he gave gifts. He gave gifts to all people, undeserved gifts like Abram's, to undeserving men and to undeserving women. The apostle Peter quotes the prophet Joel and says, In the last days God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on your male servants and your female servants, I will pour out my spirit. Have you received his gifts? Though totally undeserving. Then embrace his amazing grace this morning. And let his tenacious commitment to bless, bless you. And let that strengthen your faltering faith now. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your commitment to bless Abram. And through Abram, his offspring, Jesus Christ. And through Christ, to bless all of us here. And may we receive that blessing now as we bless your name.